to begin the evening uh, tonight with chanting the refuges and precepts. And we'll do this a couple of times each week as a way to renew our commitments. And for those people who are taking the eight precepts, we'll all, the ones who are not taking those, will stop chanting and you will chant those on your own. So there won't be anybody guiding you. You'll need to find your way through that. <laughs> and we'll chant this together. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Buddhang saranangga chami, dhammang saranangga chami. Sangang Saranang Chami Dutiampi Budang Saranang Chami Dutiampi Dhammang Saranang Chami Dutiampi Sangang Saranang Chami Tatiampi Budang Saranang Chami Tatiampi Dhammang Saranang Chami Tatiampi Sangang Saranang Chami Panati Pata Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Adina Dana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Abramacharya Viramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Musawada Viramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Sura Mirya Majapamadatana Viramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Idam me silam magapala panyanasa pachayo hutu.
I came up with a title for my talk tonight. However, um, I'm not sure really if it points directly to what I'll be speaking about. So perhaps the title will form as I'm talking this evening. But the title that I came up with is uh, Turning the Mind Towards Awakening. Over the last some years, I was, have been reading the uh, Buddhist text, uh, primarily the um, Majjhima Nikaya, which is about 152 discourses, original discourses of the Buddha. And in the reading of that, I was really quite fascinated by a number of the teachings that I hadn't really heard, mostly through the Dharma talks uh, that I had been given over the years of my practice. There's so many wonderful and pithy teachings in that text. And, uh, and sometimes I would be interested in reflecting on how those teachings were given uh, 2,500 years ago, and yet they are as if they're speaking to us right now. It really shows, in a way, the, uh, the human condition and uh, the human mind and what we're really dealing with. Uh, and that it that it hasn't changed <laughs> that much over these few thousand years. And I wanted to read something in particular that really points to this was from a discourse called The Greater Discourse on Ways of Undertaking Things. It goes like this. Buddha says, Bhikkhus, for the most part, beings have this wish desire, and longing. If only unwished-for, undesired, disagreeable things would diminish, and wished-for, desired, agreeable things would increase. Yet, although beings have this wish, unwished-for, undesired, disagreeable things increase for them, and wished-for, desired, agreeable things diminish. Now, because what do you think is the reason for that? And that is, it's so interesting to hear that because isn't that really uh, another way of talking about our condition? And I'm sure you can see that here. You know, how you, um, the things that you really want to be happening, whether it's in your own um, meditation experience or the way that you want your retreat to unfold or the way you want a particular day to be, it may not be the way you wish for it. And then the things that you're actually wishing for aren't necessarily coming together. And, and so the Buddha says, what do you think is the reason for that? And then the monks reply to him. They say, our teachings are rooted in the Blessed, blessed One, guided by the Blessed One. It would be good if the Blessed One would explain the meaning of these words. <laughs> Having heard it from you, we will remember it. (laughs) And so the Buddha goes on and says, generally, uh, he says, people don't know what things should be cultivated and followed and what things should not be cultivated and followed. We don't really know what we're doing on a certain level. In other words, for the most part, we're continuing to follow habits of mind and habits of being that aren't necessarily bringing us 
the things that we are deeply wishing for or the things that we feel are very, very important to us in our life. And then he goes on to give this particular teaching on the four, four ways of undertaking things. And I wanted to um, give this particular teaching, it's a, sh- a, a short teaching, just because I think it's an interesting thing for us to reflect on here on our retreat and also how this applies in our life. The first of the four ways, the Buddha says, is that there is a way of undertaking things that is painful now and will ripen as pain in the future. And he has, uh, I'll read some similes that he gives for each one of these. Essentially, he relates this as um, horrible-tasting poison. You know, in other words, dukkha now and dukkha later. (laughs) No getting around it. (laughs) The second one is that there is a way of undertaking things that is pleasant now, that will ripen as pain in the future. This is likened to sweet-tasting poison, right? And I'm going to say more about this because I really think this is what we are fed by our culture most of the time. Something that is, in other words, sukhanal, which is pleasure, sukhanal, dukkha later. The third one is there is a way of undertaking things that is painful now, but will ripen as pleasure in the future. And that is like taking horrible-tasting medicine. Dukkha now, but sukha later. We know that it may not be such a good thing to go through now, but it's going to pay off in the future. And the fourth one is there is a way of undertaking things that is pleasurable now and will ripen as pleasure in the future, like sweet-tasting medicine, sukha now and sukha later. This is the one we like, right? (laughs) So this is how the Buddha talks about, he gives examples of these. He says, bhikkhu, suppose, this is the first one, Uh, painful now and will ripen as pain in the future. Suppose there was a bitter gourd mixed with poison, and a man came who wanted to live, not die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain, and they told him, good man, this bitter gourd is mixed with poison. Drink from it if you want. As you drink from it, its color and smell and taste will not agree with you, and after drinking from it, you will come to death or deadly suffering. Then he drank it. (laughs) Without reflecting and did not give it up. And as he drank from it, the color and the smell and taste did not agree with him. And after drinking from it, he came to death or deadly suffering. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is painful now and ripens in the future is pain. So the second one, Undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens as uh, pain in the future. Suppose there were a bronze cup of beverage possessing a good color, good smell and taste, but it was mixed with poison. And a man came who wanted to live, not to die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain. And they told him, good man, this bronze cup of beverage possesses a good color and smell and taste. 
but it's mixed with poison. <laughs> drink from it if you want. As you drink from it, its color and smell and taste will agree with you. But after drinking from it, you'll come to death <laughs> or deadly suffering. And then he drank from it <laughs> without reflecting, and he did not relinquish it. As he drank from it, its color, smell, and taste agreed with him. But after drinking from it, he came to death or deadly suffering. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pain. The third one, painful now, dukkha now and sukha later. Suppose there were fermented urine mixed with various medicines and a man came sick with jaundice and they told him, good man, this fermented urine is mixed with... (laughs) This is actually a medicine. A fermented urine is used as a medicine. Fermented urine is mixed with various medicines. Drink from it if you want. As you drink from it, its color and smell and taste will not agree with you. But after drinking from it, you will be well. As he drank from it, its color and taste and smell did not agree with him. But after drinking from it, he became well. So this is what I say, the way of undertaking things. It may be painful now but it ripens in the future as pleasure. And then the last one, sukha now and sukha later. Suppose there were curd, honey, ghee, and molasses mixed together, and a man with dysentery came. And they told him, good man, this is curd, honey, ghee, and molasses mixed together. Drink from it if you want. As you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will agree with you. And after drinking from it, you will be well. Then he drank from it after reflecting, and he did not give it up. As he drank from it, its color, smell, and taste agreed with him. And after drinking from it, he became well. And this is what I say, um, the way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pleasure. The Buddha felt that this was such an important teaching. He said that it can dispel darkness. He says, just as in autumn, in the last month of the rainy season, when the sky is clear and cloudless, a little bit like it is now, the sun rises above the earth, dispelling all darkness from space with its shining and and beaming and radiance. So, too, the way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pleasure dispels with its shiny and beaming and radiance, any other doctrines. This is a radiant teaching, he says, a shining teaching, that if we really begin to pay attention to the consequences of what we're doing, there is the possibility of really coming to deep happiness, sukha now, sukha later. So he's really asking us, I think, to reflect deeply on the choices that we're making because ultimately our liberation, our awakening is up to us. We are the ones who are responsible. The Buddha said, I was responsible. I am responsible for my own enlightenment. Now you are responsible for your own. I can only point the way, but you have to follow the way. So this really requires contact with our own inner sense of knowing, our own kind of discriminating wisdom, to have a sense of 
what is the best way? And in every moment, every moment, we have the opportunity for choice, for making some kind of choice. Which direction are we going to go in? Are we going to go in the direction of freedom? Or are we going to go in the direction of more bondage? The difficulty is that it is not so clear-cut, is it? You know, we wish that it was so clear-cut. Don't we often wish that somebody would just give us a magic wand and say, zap, you know, and we just know exactly what to do and how to proceed and, you know, how to uh, move in our life. But it really isn't like that because our habits are so conditioned. For the most part, and a lot of the time, we feel that sense of being on automatic, that we're not sometimes so present or aware, and yet it really requires a certain uh, uh, vigilance, really, to stay present, to stay connected, so that we can access this inner knowing. We can see clearly what's actually going on so that we can make a choice that is going to lead us towards more freedom and liberation. We only have a choice in a moment of awareness. If we're lost or we're confused or we're caught up in one of our habits or tendencies, we don't have a choice. That habit itself is the one that is leading the the old conditioned way of being. But when we bring some clarity of attention, we can actually say, oh yeah, that wants, that, that habit wants to take over, but I know I have a choice to do differently because I'm connected to some wisdom that knows otherwise. That if I go down that path, if I keep doing that particular thing, I'm not going to get the result that I want. And this is the awaken, awakening of wisdom when we start to understand this. Here on retreat, we have all kinds of situations where we have to make certain choices about which direction we're going to go in. We may be quite tired. You know, a lot of people had a a lot of tiredness at the beginning of this retreat. And there's always the question, should I take a nap? Or should I go and do my walking meditation? Or should I sit in the hall and just, you know, be tired? You know, it's, it, it's not, you know, we're presented with a number of options, a number of choices. And unless we really deeply listen and connect in to some deeper source of, of wisdom, we may not know how to proceed. And that does require a, a connection with our present experience. Similarly, when we feel pain in the body, when we're sitting, say, do we move or don't we move? Do we stay longer with the pain and feeling the pain and kind of going into it, kind of going into that edge of the pain, or do we back off and maybe move or stand or uh, do shift the posture in some way? Again, it requires this deeper listening. Nobody, could, there's not a right and a wrong. It's not that there, there, you, there, you have to figure out the right way to do it, and you know what the teacher would think was right or what the Buddha would say was right. So what, what feels right in this moment? What feels best for me in this moment for my own um, liberation to support my awakening? Or if we're hungry, 
Do we go and seek out some food, or do we just sit with the hunger feelings? And it's different for different people, different conditions. We have to listen in. It may be hypoglycemic, or there may be some medication that you're taking that requires some food in the stomach. Yeah, we need to listen to all of this. Unfortunately, we have not been taught very well how to listen, how to know what's best for us. We have been told, we have a lot of imposed ideas, we have a a whole set of standards for the most part about what the right way is and the wrong way is or the way I should do it or the way I shouldn't do it. And for a lot of us, and I know for myself for a long time, I had lost access to know what I needed, what was really best for me in any given moment. And it wasn't until I was actually quite an adult, like in my 30s, that I even considered that it was possible to know what I needed for myself. Nobody ever asked me. You know, I was just kind of told or, you know, it was sort of some expectation about what I was supposed to do, but to actually find out what I needed or what I wanted and to listen more carefully was really a novelty. And I had to do a whole practice to begin to get in touch with that because it was something that I hadn't really been taught or nobody had actually pointed to me uh, before. I think that really from a very early age, we're told to take this sweet-tasting poison. You know, and the Buddha uses a strong analogy of poison, you know, that it can, you know, it can, it, poison can kill us, you know, but perhaps it's even that it, could, it kills our spirit. It, it kills the ability, the capacity that we may have to be awake, to really live our life fully and wholly. We were, were kind of told to take this sweet-tasting poison, but, but it, where it's masked as sweet-tasting medicine. This will be good for you. You know, do this, have this, go this way, and you'll be happy forever. You know, it's the, it's the whole message of the uh, advertising industry. And this really pr- keeps perpetuating this whole sense of staying on the wheel of samsara, you know, the wheel of, sam- of suffering. We just keep following this way, and we don't really know how to get off if we listen to these messages. One of my colleagues and um, friends, Stephen Batchelor, says that samsara this wheel of suffering. Samsara is like being on a wheel in a hamster's cage. There is a sense of never having moved on. We keep finding ourselves back at square one, a life of frustration. And you may have had those kind of thoughts where you think, how, why am I here again? You know, how did I wind up here again? You know, whether it's a relationship or a job or, you know, um, a mind state, you know, it's like, here I am again. You know, we can find ourselves in the same place and not really knowing uh, how to move on. I wanted to um, share this. You know, we find ads, we find articles in the newspaper Uh, Some of you may have heard me read this before, but I think it's so outrageous that um, I want to share it with you tonight. Um, It just shows kind of like how out there this message is um, for us. 
It's called, and, and this was last year, I was just reading the USA Today, and I came across this. It's real. This is a real article. FAA, the FAA seeks to keep billboards from space is the a title of it. This is for real. <laughs> the Federal Aviation Administration filed proposed regulations to ensure that it can enforce an existing law that prohibits obtrusive advertising in zero gravity. It says, uh, the FAA said, objects placed in orbit, if large enough, could be seen by people around the world for long periods of time. For instance, outsized billboards deployed by a space company into low Earth orbit could appear as large as the moon and be seen without a telescope. It's kind of scary, you know? Big and bright advertisements also might hinder astronomers, the FAA said. <laughs> you know, they have to come up, for re- come up with reasons, you know, not to deploy these billboards. <laughs> however, and this is the sad part, it says, however, the FAA lacks the authority to enforce the existing law. So, you know, it just shows, you know, that anything's possible, you know, with that message that, you know, if you have this, if you do that, this is the way, this is that, you know, this, this is the sweet tasting medicine that's really going to bring that lasting happiness for us. So what happens is that our mind is perpetually searching for something. And it's based on, and this is where they get us, because we believe, most of us have this belief that we're incomplete in some way. And that by having these things and getting these things or even altering our mind or our body in some way, that it is going to give us some sense of completion. And that's what keeps us on this treadmill of searching and becoming different than we are. Searching for some kind of refuge from this inner restlessness, this inner happiness, without really understanding that the restlessness is actually there because we are looking in the wrong place. We don't know where to look for our true happiness. Perhaps you've heard the, um, one of the Nasruddin stories, the, 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 the Sufi uh, uh, sage Nasruddin, who was looking for his key, and he was out uh, under the lamppost looking for his keys, and he couldn't find them, and somebody came by and said, Nasruddin, what are you doing? He said, I'm looking for my keys. He said, well, where did you lose them? And he said, well, in the house. Then why are you looking out here? He said, well, there's more light out here. You know, and, and in a way, that's what we're doing you know, we're kind of, we're looking in the wrong place for something that we really want. It reminded me of a line from the Tina, Tina Turner song, looking for love in all the wrong places, you know. And, and this is what happens. We can see it here in practice when our mind slips off into some kind of imaginary refuge, you know, and it, it's what happens when we're meditating. It's just a, the mind is slipping into fantasies or plans or memories or, you know, some, uh, some, some aspect of past or, or future that 
doesn't allow us to rest more fully right here and now because this isn't very satisfying a lot of the time. So it seems like it's more interesting or more, it feels better or there's something more comforting or more secure to go to those places that we know or that we fantasize in some way that are pleasurable and, and give us some kind of a good feeling. The thing is, though, it is, it's really a way to help us feel secure. We're looking for some kind of security so that we don't have to feel this restlessness or this discontentment or this unsatisfactoriness that we feel in ourselves. And so when we're asked to just stay present, we're really asked to feel what's here even though We don't like it very well a lot of the time because this is really where we're going to find what we're looking for. We can only find it here, and we can only find it now. It's not anywhere else that what we're looking for is right here. When I was reflecting on this today, I remembered I had a a memory of of a time in the early days of my practice here at IMS uh, in the early 80s, when I was uh, interviewing with Joseph Goldstein, my teacher at the time. And um, I remember I remembered going into the interview, and I really wanted to have a bowl for my food. It just seemed like the kind of food that we were eating here was better in a bowl than on a plate. And... Uh, and I went in and <laughs> told Joseph, for some reason, <laughs> I don't know why, in my interview, that I really wished I had a bowl. And when I think about it, <laughs> it seems a little silly that I would bring that up in my interview. I, I wasn't that uh, comfortable in my, maybe because I wasn't so comfortable in the interview, I was um, a little nervous or something. And he just, out of his generosity of heart, he said, oh, I have a bowl. <laughs> And he went into his closet, and he said, well, somebody gave me this bowl, and um, you can use it because I'm not using it. And I looked at it, and it was really a beautiful bowl. It was a, a fired ceramic bowl, just the right size with, you know, uh, beautiful colors. And just, it was just, I was, I just loved that bowl. And so I, every day, you know, I used the bowl, and it was Joseph gave me the bowl. And... <laughs> And I felt so special, and I just and I built up so much around this bowl. It was um, so important. And then I I noticed that as the this was early in the retreat, it was a three month retreat, and I remembered as time went on, it started losing some of its meaning. You know, it was just kind of a bowl. <laughs> and I was starting to reflect more deeply into the way I might be imbuing meaning into things that aren't necessarily um, what I'm making them to be. And I remembered this sense of it starting to feel just a little empty and hollow. That whole thing that I had built up around that bowl, just it was just hollow. I could see how it was just a fantasy. It was another way of kind of building myself up and making myself more special as well because I had this beautiful bowl that Joseph gave me. 
So it was, it's just was an interesting reflection that arose today in that sense of just how that, that sense of um, meaning just would just just started fading away when I started to come more in reality, just with the bare reality of the way things are. Just a bowl, a beautiful bowl, a bowl that Joseph gave me, but a beautiful, but a, just a bowl, just a bowl. So in this way, we do get pulled out of our experience. We get it pulled out of our here and now experience, thinking that something else is going to bring this happiness, this kind of toppling forward, which really is a rejection of what's happening now. And this is becoming so much more clear to me, how this moving away towards the something that I think is going to really give me that wonderful feeling, I'm rejecting myself in some way. I'm rejecting what's here. And the more that I'm able to come into contact and connection with what's here, it's amazing that there's a whole world unto itself right in this moment that deserves all this respect, all this honor, all this care right now. We so easily can compare where we are now with some kind of idealized state whether it's some fantasy or whether it's this way that I made meaning out of this object that I had, it's kind of, we kind of tell ourselves something like this. Here's where I am now, and over there's where I want to be. Where I am now is not quite as good or comfortable or pleasant as where I want to be, so where I am should change to that other place. And this is really very subtle. It's such a subtle movement of the mind. It's just this this, this slipping over to where we think it's going to be a little bit better. I had this experience, too, here uh, at IMS and and, and giving talks here at IMS. I, I remember more of some things that happened for me all the years that I've practiced here. I haven't been down in the basement in the big walking room yet, and I'm wondering whether they still have those two very large old rugs um, that were there 25 years ago. <laughs> and uh, those, those rugs were really a wonderful teacher for me, and it was an experience that made a very strong impact, um, uh, insight, an insightful impact for me. And again, it's sometimes these insights can come from such simple unexpected experiences. I was walking, I like to walk along an edge of something where I have a straight line, um, wherever it is. I just like to have some kind of straight line. It's something in my character. And so I was just walking along the edge of the rug, back and forth and in the middle between the two rugs, just back and forth, really doing very good mindfulness practice, very steady, very calm, very quiet, somewhat concentrated, minding my own business, you know, just walking back and forth. And then in a moment, the thought arose as I looked over at the other rug. That's a nicer rug. (laughs) I think I'd rather be walking along the edge of that rug. And I just, I just noticed the thought and I just kept walking you know, not buying, you know, not, not really having to do anything about it, just walking. And then it just became, I became so interested in the, in the fact that that thought even arose. And then I started reflecting, 
what would I be thinking that it would actually be some kind of a better experience to be walking along the edge of that rug than the edge of this rug? It was just so, I just, I was so tickled. I was just kind of so fascinated that my mind would fabricate that, you know? And, and I looked at the other rug, and it wasn't really a whole lot better than the, the rug I was walking on. And it was just so, I just kept feeling into that and recognizing how the mind is so slippery and so seductive. And without the mindfulness, without the clarity of attention that I had in that moment, I very likely would have hopped over to the other rug, right? Oh, let's see how this is. Let's see how that feels. But yet, as you know, when we are very concentrated and we're moving somewhat slowly, making those kind of quick actions can be a little disturbing to the concentration. And yet that, that very likely could have happened had I not recognized that thought. And it was actually a very important insight for me just to continue in a very, very subtle way to watch that the, the sl- just how the mind wants to slip off to the next thing or to the better thing or to that which I'm going to feel a little bit more comfortable a little happier, you know, a little more sukha, a little more pleasure. Who knows why the edge of that rug would have given me more pleasure, but somehow that's the way that it was fabricated within my psyche. So when the Buddha says what makes things undesirable or disagreeable or desirable and agreeable, when we're really kind of exploring that, and we break it down a little bit in our experience, we can see that it really has to do with how the experience is going to make us feel. There's a feeling. There's a kind of, if we feel, we, if we feel good, we like what's happening. And if it doesn't feel good, we don't like what's happening. It's very connected with this feeling of good or not feeling good. Um, if I feel good, then I have a sense that I'm doing something right, Right? or my experience is right, my practice is right. You know, it's the way we actually can measure our practice by the feeling, if we're, how we're feeling. Or if I don't feel good, or if I've got pain, or I'm a little confused, or I'm a little dull, or I'm grunch, grouchy or irritable, then I must be doing something wrong. And then I've got to find out what to do right so that I'm not feeling the way I'm feeling. And we, we, I think we're pretty wired up like this, you know, which really brings us to a kind of fixing mentality where I've got to fix my experience because something's wrong. And I know something's wrong because I'm not feeling very good. And we, we so easily personalize our experience. And it's not that, 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 the experience is wrong or I'm doing something wrong, I'm wrong. I'm, I'm wrong or I'm bad or I'm a bad person or there's some way that we can start to create a whole identity around that sense of how that particular experience is going or how it makes me feel. And then I become the problem that needs to be fixed. That becomes my of another part of my identity. Something's wrong and I need to be fixed. Sometimes this is a motivation for practice. 
Um, I'm really a mess, and I got to get myself together. I got to make myself better, or something like that. And I'm not sure that this is really such a helpful belief or a helpful foundation. I mean, ultimately, anything that gets us to practice is good. You know, I um, came to practice, came to the to the to uh, uh, Buddhist meditation when I was in my mid twenties because I was having a nervous breakdown. Really, I was having a nervous breakdown, and I was in a lot of suffering. So I was motivated to get out of that, and so there was something in my being that knew which direction to go to towards, and I was able to begin meditation, which really helped me start to come out of it. So it's a very good, uh, it can be, I mean, anything that helps us come to meditation, practice to the Buddhist uh, path is, is good. However, at some point, we really need to examine if we still are holding this belief about ourselves that something is wrong, I'm wrong, and I need to be fixed. Because that will keep the mind moving and searching and problem-solving for ways to have better experiences or to experience ourselves in a better way. This also can form the agendas that we come into retreat with. And sometimes in our interviews, we hear these agendas. You know, some, some people might say, you know, well, in two weeks, I really want to overcome this fear that I have about this uh, person that I'm in relationship with or something like that. You know, I mean, some often quite unrealistic um, ideas that people have that somehow the meditation practice is really going to help them overcome some very uh, deeply conditioned problem. And this isn't very wise uh, thinking. It's not very clear thinking. So just for a moment, just for a moment, imagine that you are not a problem that needs to be fixed. See if you can if you, maybe you don't have this kind of thinking, but if you do have this kind of thinking, just kind of try that on for a moment and see what happens. See what kind of response arises. Is there a voice that says, don't be silly, of course you need to be fixed. You know, some kind of resistance or, you know... uh, um, counter attack to the to the message or can you just kind of sense into it for a moment that maybe how you are right now is fine that you're really fine not only fine that perhaps maybe there's some kind of perfection in the way that your life is unfolding your process is unfolding right now that maybe where you are is exactly where you need to be for your particular life's journey, for your particular unfolding. And yet there can be this part of ourself that is so insistent, you know, that it has to be different. I have to be different. Things have to be different. And that voice can try to run us, try to control us, try to motivate us in particular ways to do things 
But it's probably not the most reliable voice. It's probably not the one that I would encourage you to listen to. So again, kind of going into a more quiet, uh, uh, tender place in ourself, and maybe listening from somewhere else, what is best, what is right, what is true right now for me? How do I need to proceed? How do I need to go about what I'm doing right now, where I am right now? Getting in touch with a much quieter, tender voice, in our being that we that is reliable that we can depend on and listen to as we deepen into our practice into our awareness into our being i think the way that we relate to these ideas of right and wrong begins to change rather than these ideas being something that have been imposed and standards that we've set for ourselves. And it's very mental, a lot of mental configuration about how we think we're supposed to be or what we should do or not do. We start to listen to something else that tells us what's right and what's wrong. The mind, our mind drops into the heart. This is my experience, that rather than our our, our attention and our energy being so caught up in our mental activity, there's kind of a dropping of the attention down. Even we can feel it physically, energetically. And we can feel more of a connection with our heart, the area around our heart. And there, there is a, can be an experience where we may sense something much more quiet, tender, still, but yet there's still, we may still say that there is a kind of a, an inner voice or an inner wisdom or an inner uh, guidance that we can sense that comes through that says, yes, this is right. And it's not right for everybody. It's not kind of a global right. But it's like, yeah, this is right for me in this moment right now. And there's a sense of knowing. There's a sense of contact and connection. And you just know you know, you just know that you're going in the right way or you're going in the right direction. And there's not the confusion or so much doubt or, or suspicion about what we're doing or not doing. It's just like, yeah, I know now. And that may last for some time or it may last for short periods of time. And yet getting a sense more and more of that connection with our deeper knowing is very important for us as we begin to navigate through this challenging life, this challenging life that we find ourselves in. If our spiritual awakening is really what is central for us in our life, and I really do trust that that's true for everybody in this room, that that is the most valuable thing, is awakening then I think the question changes rather than what, I, what do I think is right or wrong, you know, using the thinking process or, or what feels good now or what feels bad right now, you know, rather than orienting that way. I think the question changes to something like, what would be helpful for awakening 
right now? What would be well helpful for my uh, for my liberation for 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 the experience of freedom? What would be what would be the best thing for my awakening? Is this choice that I'm making right now a helpful one or not? And we can even propose the question and then just sense into it, just feel into it. Does this feel right for my awakening? Really continuing to put our 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 liberation, our sense of freedom right in the center of the moment, the moment that is arising right now. And I think there are many people in this room who really know that that experience and have that sense of what it's like when awakening is in the f- forefront. And that begins to orient our choices and our decisions more and more in our life. And there's not so much of a gap. We may not find ourselves going down the road of some pain and destruction or uh, where we find ourselves in a disagreeable uh, situation for quite as long. Maybe we wake up a little bit sooner. We catch it a little bit sooner. We recognize a little bit faster that maybe that's not the best direction to go in. Every moment we have this opportunity to orient ourselves towards awakening. And that's something that's so beautiful about being on retreat because we really are reminded of that. And it's so easy to forget when we're out in our daily life. The other day I was um, uh, facilitating a a staff dharma uh, hour with some of the people here on staff and just, you know, giving some some uh, teachings around uh, uh, mindfulness and, and presence and waking up and around speech and talking and communicating, relating, and all that sort of thing. And then when I was done, I said, you know, just some words to, to help you, to remind you. And then one of the st- uh, staff uh, women said, yes, just rememberings, rememberings. We need to remember. Because in a way, we already know We do already know. We just need to remember. And it's the remembering that's hard. And so when we come on retreat, we're we're sort of in a uh, more of a state of remembrance. There are a lot of things here, uh, a lot of reminders with the the Buddha statues and the, the schedule and the other yogis doing their practice. And, you know, the whole environment is a support for us to remember to remember what's important here. This is uh, one of my favorite poems from Rumi. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. I just love that. You know, there's a field and I'll meet you there. And Rumi goes on to say, when the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas and language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. The whole duality starts to crumble, starts to fall apart, this right and wrong and good and bad and should and shouldn't and, you know, trying to orient ourselves in that way, it just all falls apart. When we come here into the present moment 
with what is and feel and sense and connect with that inner knowing, that inner sense of rightness, watching the ways that our mind wants to impose our conditioned ideas that we've learned from the past of how we should be or what we're supposed to be doing or all the the ways we can get confused and um, disoriented and uh, start to reject ourselves or judge ourselves or condemn ourselves, put ourselves down. When we start to quiet that mind, start to quiet and drop down to feel more of the heart, our being, our our, um, tender places, something different starts to happen. Something that we begin to trust, we begin to listen to, we begin to have a sense that this is reliable. This is a ground. This is a foundation of my being that is reliable. Whereas the thinking mind, the judging mind, the critical mind, the analytical mind, that that very busy mind that we can so often be caught up in is not so reliable. And this is one of the things that we are reminded about in our practice, in our meditation, asking the question, what is worth listening to? What really is worth listening to? Sometimes the meditation is called listening practice. As the mind gets quiet, as we start to become, become more still in ourselves, we're just listening. Sometimes listening to the sounds, outer sounds, listening to the inner sounds, but also listening to something much more secret, I think. Much more quiet that we need to be so still to hear. This is what we can depend on. I think I'll end with this poem from Denise Levertov called Sabbath. Don't say, don't say there is no water to solace the dryness at our hearts. I have seen the fountain springing out of the rock wall and you drinking there. And I too, before your eyes, found footholds and climbed to drink the cool water. The woman at that place, shading her eyes, frowned as she watched, but not because she grudged the water, only because she was waiting to see we drank our fill and were refreshed. Don't say, don't say there is no water. That fountain is there among its scalp green and gray stones. It is still there and always there with its quiet song and strange power to spring in us up and out through the rock. Let's sit together for a moment.
it is still there, the water, and always there with its quiet song and strange power to spring in us up and out through the rock. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.